0: You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. I mentioned um, yesterday that uh, you, you buy your business again every morning that you decide to keep it and go into the office, the showroom, the store, um, down the stairs to the basement, wherever your business may be and go to work. And so you make, whether you have thought about it that way or not, you make a decision very similar to the decision Buffett and Munger make, except you make it every day about the business you're already in. And they make it about a business they may want to buy a big hunk of or all of. And so, having a criteria for it is useful and if you find your business doesn't match a criteria by which you would buy it today then that tells you things to do to change the business so that it is something that you would happily get out a checkbook and buy this morning after your breakfast so The idea of would Warren um, or would I uh, buy your business? Most of you would be too small for Buffett to buy. But if you set aside size, would the rest of your business qualify? So I'm not doing a book report because I've been a big observer of um, uh, Buffett and Munger for, for many, many years. But there is a book. Um, um, what I learned before I sold to Warren Buffett, uh, which I do recommend. Um, and this is the guy that started and owned Hellsberg Jewelry. Um, and Berkshire Hathaway owns it and several other retail jewelry brands. Um, To be fair, to be accurate, although he has a reputation for it, Buffett and Munger are not the most successful investors in the world. Uh, But they're right up there. Um, They're at least in the top ten. Some of their investing is backstopped for them uh, by the federal government. Uh, Warren's gotten quite good at that. Um, And that um, kind of changes the whole risk dynamic, um, if you know that if things go awry, as when he invested in the big banks in the 2008 crash, he was backstopped by the Obama administration, uh, guaranteed no more than a 20% loss of principal. So if you can have a big upside, and by the way, there are investments that do that for individuals, if you can have a big upside and you can be guaranteed you won't lose more than 20% of your principal, that does change the calculation versus, hey, I might lose all the principal. It changes it a lot. But setting all that aside, it's important to understand that Buffett and Munger mostly are not stock investors. They mostly buy companies or large portions of companies. They're pretty eclectic in some ways. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway owns uh, Pampered Chef, uh, which is a Tupperware-like home party sales company. They own retail jewelry. They own railroads, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a criteria. They have a way of managing these decisions They have certain litmus tests, and litmus tests are really, really useful because they shortcut the amount of time you need in order to make a decision. So you should have a lot of those. For example, my litmus test for doing business with somebody is if they're late for the first appointment, um, I don't want to do business with them because they're going to be even later um, Has time – goes by and even less reliable. So so by my own observation study, I've pulled these what Buffett looks for in a business uh, principles. Um, I use them myself in stock investing and and I think every business owner should periodically evaluate his own company uh, within this frame. Uh, So here's the first one. The fact is, there's almost no place, at least in America, (coughs) that needs another donut shop. You're within, you know, an eighth of a mile or Grubhub call uh, of donuts. There's plenty of donuts. So in our little neighborhood, in our community, um, there's a bakery shop. Um, Been there for a long time, right on the main street. Um, The owner is in it. Everybody knows the shop and her. It's where the cops go to get their donuts. So you know the donuts are pretty good. She is a version of the soup Nazi from the Seinfeld show. She's really funny. I mean, the place is plastered with signs like If you order a custom cake and you call us more than twice to ask if we're on schedule, the price doubles. Mm -hmm. There's a big sign on the freezer thing where some of the cakes are. Don't hold the door open and let the cold air out, stupid. It's a clear door. I mean, so you got to love this woman, right? Um, But so this shop's been there forever. So about six months ago, Oh, a distance from here to there. Uh, Somebody buys a house, but it's in a commercial zone. And guess what they open? A donut shop, yeah, that makes donuts. And they put a big sign in the yard that says, donuts, park in the back. This is their sign. They lasted four months. They're gone. The house is up for sale. And I doubt she even broke a sweat putting them out of business because we didn't need another donut shop. We got her, there's a Dunkin' Donuts a little ways away, there's a Starbucks a little ways away that you can at least get a glazed donut in. Um, if you want to sit down at a table, you know, there's a Bob Evans and they got donuts. They're donuts everywhere. So the first principle, and I find a lot of people um, that wind up in mastermind groups or that I have individual contact with, do not grasp this. They've gone into business because they want to be in that business. And I never met her, but I am sure the person who opened up that donuts parking in the rear shop, I'm sure... She had all kind of reasons why she wanted to be in the donut business in Northfield, Ohio. None of them could have been Northfield, Ohio desperately needs a donut shop. But I'm sure she had all kind of reasons. So the first principle is a legitimate reason for being. You are not going to find anything in the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio that does not have a reason other than its owner passions, interests, and preferences for being. And a lot of people try and make up for this with what I do. So their business has no legitimate reason for being, but they think they can make up for that with really good advertising and really good marketing. And sometimes they wind up at the table across from me, eager for me to do that for them. And when I ask the financial advisor in Tupelo, how many of you are there in Tupelo? Mostly he doesn't know, but when you press him to go get that data, it's a pretty good sized number for the size of the market he's in. And then when I say, versus all the others, what's your reason for being? Why are you essential to old people with money in Tupelo? He has no real answer. So his business has no reason to exist. Now this is even deeper than unique selling propositions. A unique selling proposition is kind of cute and kind of clever, right? But the best ones have a basis, a foundation. So the example I used for years of USP in all my speeches was the original Domino's USP. Fresh hot pizza delivered in 30 minutes or less guaranteed, right? At the time, nobody, was delivering reliably. You didn't get it like Monahan described it. You got it maybe 20 minutes one time, 40 minutes the next, even worse, because the driver's lost and he's on the phone. I'm down in this cul-de-sac and there's a blue house. Where the hell are you? Uh, And if it did get to you, It damn sure wasn't fresh and hot. So he, by figuring out how to do that, had a reason for being on which a good unique selling proposition could be based. So I try and drive all my clients into this reason for being rabbit hole. Not because you want to, Not because you're good at it, because consumers can't tell that until you do it. Not because it's what your dad did. Not because, what gives you the right to take up space and air in your category of business? So I have a client in financial services, national in scope, not local, and he deals only with people who are selling or have just sold their company for $20 million or more. And he is an absolute specialist in not only the financial aspects of all that, but the psycho-emotional aspects of all that, which are even more important. How many here have sold a company for 20 million bucks or more? Anybody? One, 10 million or more? Anybody? Okay, so you don't know. So let me quickly tell you what happens. When someone does that, they, quick, they do some or all of five really stupid things. The reason for that is mostly they're men. It's about 85-15. And they've never had $20 million in one bucket before. It's been captive in the business. All of a sudden, they have cash, and they are untethered from the business. So I have Ted used this old joke. Guy comes into the bar with a dog, sits up at the bar with the dog. The bartender says, you can't have a dog in here because we serve food. Bartender says, wait a minute. When you see what this dog will do, it's the middle of the day. Nobody's in here anyway. You'll let him stay and have his beer. Bartender says, what does the dog do? He says, watch this. Puts a few singles in the dog's mouth and says, go get me a pack of cigarettes. Boom. Dog's off the bar stool, out the door. He's back like lightning with a pack of cigarettes in his mouth. Spits the cigarettes out on the bar, spits a little change out on the bar, climbs back up on the bar stool, waiting for his beer. Bartender says, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Can I send him to fetch something for me? Guy says, sure, go ahead. So he puts a $20 bill in the dog's mouth and tells him to go get him a few packs of cigarettes. Out the dog goes. Half an hour later, no dog. Hour later, no dog. Now they got to go out and look for him. They find him back in the alley and he is having wild sex with a poodle. Owner yells at him, what are you doing? Dog says, I never had 20 bucks all at one time before. (laughs) So the, the guy that sells his company gets 20 million. That's one of the five stupid things he does. I won't bore you with the other four, but they are equally stupid. So Ted has a profound reason for being. I'm the guy that's going to stop you from doing stupid shit after you sell your company. And I'm going to even tell you, don't do anything for a year, including move money to me. Let's work on it for a year. He has a story that matches. He has authority that matches. He has books that So he has a reason for being in financial services. I have another private client, local, not national, in financial services. He's probably here somewhere. He's lying here. There you are. So, great niche for him. College professors retirement planning. Why? Because his whole family's college professors, except him. He already has a bunch of college professors as clients by accident. So he can niche credibly to every college professor in the greater Pittsburgh area. He has a reason for being. Instead of being one of 50 in Pittsburgh, all generically talking about generic retirement planning to a generic population right alongside everybody else and just trying to outmarket them, he has a reason for being. So the first thing you gotta ask yourself every day when you decide to be in your business again is should the damn thing even exist in the first place? And if so, why? And now, how do we exploit that reason? And again, if you go through, you could do it any period of time. If you go through the Berkshire Hathaway set of companies, you'll be able to understand, oh, I get it. They're in that thing. Here's why it has the right to exist and be in a marketplace. This somewhat ties to um, a renegade millionaire system principle of mine, which is, is the business successfully violating industry norms? So Buffett rarely buys one that isn't. I would never buy one that isn't. I think it is one of the single most important principles about business success that there is. Because the overwhelming majority of people are wrong pretty much about everything, but specifically about money. I first heard it to give credit where credit is due from Earl Nightingale. You have to be of a certain age, I know. Um, And on Lead the Field, tape number two, Earl said, if you set out to do something and you don't know how to do it and you can't find any information about how to do it and you can't find a role model to follow in doing it, Just look at what everybody else is doing in that category and don't do it. That's the starting point. In 1978, I'm Boot Phoenix and kind of hung out the shingle as a speaker full time. And I went to the National Speakers Association Winter Workshop. I'd been doing it for a year, dumb, primitive, etc., but I managed to grind out about $110,000. And I went to see the pros to see what they were doing and start doing this smarter. So the first thing I discovered is if I mentioned to anybody in conversation that I had only managed to grind out one hundred and ten dollars the year before doing it the way I was doing it, Uh, I got two reactions. One, nobody believed the 110, and two, they wanted not to hear what I was doing, which was the exact opposite of why I was there. And it turns out, other than about 20 headliners, Tommy Hopkins, those guys, nobody else knew what the hell they were doing. Now, they were all better speakers than I was, because I stunk, but they had no idea of any of these business elements and they are really guilty they were then, they are now just like authors are of having no reason to exist they're a motivational speaker because they want to be a motivational speaker in today's world they want to be Tony and when you break the news to them there's already a Tony they have no answer for this Adam will tell you almost, almost every client, except maybe really smart ones from us, come to advantage because they want to do a book. And they have an idea about what they want to do a book about. But they have no answer to who the hell needs another book on X. They don't, huh? I, I, I want to do a book on X. Yeah, but we already got a book on X. So at NSA, I quickly said, okay, I've heard Nightingale. Turns out I'm not gonna get what I wanted here, but I can make a big long list of everything they all do, and I can make sure I don't do any of them. Now this is a useful homework exercise. You lock yourself in a room with a legal pad and a pen, and you make the biggest list you can, Don't let yourself out for food until you've listed at least 50 of the norms of your field. And then figure out how to violate as many of them as is humanly possible. If everybody has a business card, you just heard the best reason on earth never to have one. If everybody prices with prices ending in nine, you just heard the best reason on earth not to have any price end in nine. See, everybody's wrong, particularly about money. Here's the proof. The proof that everybody is wrong, particularly about money, is the exact fact that is again being screamed about in the political world. The enormous problem of income inequality. The existence of the one percenters. In response to Howard Schultz talking about running for president, which of course he's insane, but that's neither here nor there, as an independent, that Midler's response was, do we really need a white male billionaire on every corner. She, a multimillionaire, objects to one-percenters. Well, but the fact that there's one percent, the pyramid actually is, one percent really, really, really high incomes and or really, really rich, four percent high incomes, rich, Another 15% affluent, and the rest of it is in the toilet. And that, by the way, is any population you organize, you put together, any one of them. So that's every profession. So if you're a dentist, if we take all the dentists, or we take all the dentists who do implants or we take all the female dentists, or we take all the male dentists, or we take all the Asian dentists, or we take all the dentists in Pocatello. Whatever population of dentists you put together, they fit this pyramid. There's 1% of them just kicking ass and taking names. There's 4% doing pretty damn well. There's another 15%, six figures. The drop after that, is precipitous and stunning well there's your evidence and by the way those numbers don't change they haven't changed since social security administration started doing 40 year data on people in the 1960s nothing changes these all the tech All the easy availability of information for free. All the YouTube videos that show people how to do just about anything. None of that changes these percentages. Because this is behavioral. It's not about anything else. And all the conversations about income inequality, by the way, nobody ever puts in that conversation behavioral inequality. Nobody ever talks about it. They talk about that in a vacuum. Well, it's a consequence. It's not a cause. It happens because of certain things. So the proof is there that in your industry, the norms are all wrong. To be a norm, it can't be held only by 1%. It can't be held only by 5%. It can't even be held only by 20%. To be a norm, it's held by the 80%. That's what makes it a norm. So any norm you see, you know, from a financial standpoint, is made by believed in by, enforced by, pushed on you by the people who are dead-ass wrong about super high incomes and wealth. So you're going to buy a company, and it is conforming to the norms of its industry. You don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Its business model sucks. You want to find the guys who have figured out how to deviate from the norms. So Darren Garmin is probably, is Darren here this morning? Or did Darren, I think Darren had to leave. So Darren, um, Darren sells investment real estate. So he's a commercial real estate broker, but he sells apartment buildings, shopping centers, warehouses, et cetera, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 90% of it to people who don't live in or live near Cedar Rapids, Iowa, including people who live in California and live in Japan, Every other competitive commercial broker in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, is listing and selling in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Well, that's the industry norm. If you become a commercial real estate broker tomorrow, what's the norm? Where you're planted is where you do business. You don't nationalize that and essentially leave out the place where the product is. So he's violated every industry norm. What happens? Fee elasticity, price elasticity. David Phelps, who is here, teaches people how to invest in real estate and, and has a cadre of vendors who bring them prepackaged real estate deals. However, he only does it with dentists. If you're not a dentist, you can't get in. You can't do business with him, And you've got to pay an access coaching fee to be allowed to do business with them. At the top of that pyramid is a $100,000 fee. Now, you tell the average real estate trainer, coach, broker, you're going to charge people $100,000 just so they're allowed to do business with you. And you're only going to work with dentists. You can watch the guy laugh you out of the room. So for example, Buffett, when he bought Pampered Chef, see, so you understand those companies are very aberrant, particularly today. Products not sold in stores. It's not sold uh, uh, um, uh, in catalogs. It's not sold online except in closed websites for the customers of the distributors. And it is predominantly sold at a home party which most people would say, oh, like my grandma went to, like Tupperware. It violates all the industry norms for how the hell you're supposed to sell kitchen appliances. He doesn't own any other kitchen appliance company. He only owns this one because it violates all the industry norms. I saw an article right before I came this is uh, the co-founder of a company called The Infatuation, which basically is an online business that helps people find a restaurant to go to, or a, so. There's somewhat a Yelp competitor and a Zagat guide competitor. Uh, in 2014, when most digital publishers knew only one way to build an audience, Chris Stang and his co-founder Andrew Steinthal chose a very different path. They started sending text messages. And that's all they did. I'll drop down here. Let's see. It made us very good at serving the community with recommendations and it also made us rank much higher in organic search results. Today, Facebook's algorithm changes has hurt all of our competitors' traffic, but less than 4% of our traffic comes from Facebook. The brand has expanded into 35 cities and they most recently bought Zagat, the number one brand in this category. So everybody else is doing five things, six things, eight things, ten things. They take the one thing hardly anybody is doing and they make that their thing. Eric Hoffer in the book, True Believer. um, Eric says, when most people are free to do anything they please. So that's you, right? That's the, I'm my own boss you know, the, the worst thing about being your own boss is you got a really crappy employee and you can't fire him. That's, that's like, you know, I mean, I think you should always have two even if you don't need him. So you got somebody to fire. But Because um, I'll tell you what, there's days that this guy should get fired, but I can't. So you're free to do anything. That's kind of why you're an entrepreneur. Here's the danger. When most people are free to do anything they please, they usually wind up just imitating each other. Well, boy, is that true. When people get in almost any business, what do they do? What do most of them do when they go to that workshop that I went to? They look around at what everybody else is doing. They do that. And maybe they try and do it incrementally better. So like in that world, at that time, everybody had a demo tape. You had to have a demo tape of segments of your speeches. And meeting planners would ask for your demo tape. I never had a demo tape. Ever. I didn't know why. I just knew everybody else had one, so that can't be the right thing to do. But then I had to have an answer for the, send me your demo tape. I was forced to have an answer. My answer was, if you need to hear a demo tape of me, you don't know enough about me to hire me. Nobody who hires me needs to hear a demo tape. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm serious, that was the response. Oh, I'm sorry. Buffett says, what the wise do in the beginning, fools do in the end. So the later you are into a category, the more people there are doing things, in a normal way which will impose pressure on you to follow those norms. Okay, second thing. You are not going to find a company in the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio that is not systems-driven. Even Pamperchef is systems So the business owner is walking around with it all in his head and is then pulling it out of his butt and winging it on a day-to-day basis. That's not an acquirable business. Only a business that is driven by systems is an acquirable drivus and even creative pursuits. So I get asked a lot of questions about writing, and people have this illusion that writers smoke some funny stuff and sit in a room and, you know, come up with ideas. No, 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 no. All prolific writers have a system. They do it the same way, at the same pace, in the same place, every single time. Most have templates, they write to templates, et cetera, et cetera. So the great businesses are driven by systems. So the questions for you are these. Is your business driven by systems or is it a collection of random and erratic acts? Most businesses, advertising and marketing by the way, consists of random and erratic acts. There's usually some duress like oh, crap, we don't have any customers, that sparks some random and erratic acts of advertising and marketing. Is there a constancy and persistence of the system? So if you're reinventing the damn thing every month, it's not a system. It's supposed to perpetuate. And you should be not refusing to modify it, but pretty damn skeptical about modifying one that works. It's not the reason to be here. The reason to be here is to find ways, tools, resources, people that allow you to strengthen and accelerate the system you've already got that works. Not to go screw with it. Is most of the money being made now, this would be a big Buffett one. Is most of the money being made by escalating and or accelerating and or expanding what works? Or is it a series of experiments? Buffett and Munger aren't operators. Eighty percent of the companies they buy, the owners and managers stay in place. They don't want to run experiments. They don't want to have to create They want to add fuel to the machine, mostly in the form of capital and synergistic relationships with other things they own. They don't want to run experiments. Does it own and leverage marketing assets or does it do marketing as a verb? Now Buffett Munger wouldn't say it this way. This is mine but it's a principle they apply, they just don't enunciate it this way. So there's two kinds of marketing. There are marketing assets. That's a thing you create and get the bugs out of once that then has long life. If not evergreen, as close to it as we can get. So I showed in the little pre-day thing I did on lead generation for a small number of you, I showed a lead generation ad that runs every month in more than a dozen magazines for a company, and it has not changed since 1948. That's a marketing asset. Very recently, I had a direct mail piece and a video sales letter I created for a client, and we changed neither for nine years. That's a marketing, drove traffic, mailed and drove traffic to the VSL every single day. Most months mailing, 100,000 pieces or more. Never changed anything. See, that's a marketing asset. It's like an oil well at Southbrook where you went last night. Just turn it on, put a bucket under it, go do something else. That's a marketing asset. And you want a company that you decide to buy tomorrow morning. You want a company with a lot of of marketing assets. The magnetic marketing system, which is responsible probably for a lot of you being in this room that drove this company for many, many years. See, that's a marketing asset. I built it once. The speech to sell it, marketing asset, used it for 14 years, never changed a word. Memorized it. Good to go. Most people do marketing as a verb. Particularly those who have been driven into doing more online than offline. Because online media demands new. So if you start to do a bunch of online, people will be standing in the doorway of your office wanting another new video today. See, that's marketing as a verb. The more marketing is a verb that is a part of a business, the less likely Buffett would be to buy it. One of the greatest systems-driven businesses of all time is McDonald's. What do they have in common? They have systems so good that they can run this thing with a bunch of pimply-faced, hormone-raging high school kids and now doddering, addled old people. And it all works. That's a systems-driven business. Ray Kroc said, most business success comes from doing boring, diligent work from developing a system that produces consistent results and then sticking to it. Creativity is overrated. He's a thousand percent right. The clients I have had and have who make the most money with their businesses are actually pretty boring because they have got systems that work and they work those systems and to deviate from them, somebody has to do one hell of a persuasion job. This has been me my entire life. I mean, I laugh about it. I get up in the morning and I go down to my basement office, which is pretty much the same as every office I've ever had, which has been in basements or spare bedrooms, and is the office I grew up in as a kid. And I do the same stuff on the same designated days, the same way I've been doing it for a long, long, long time. At the end of a private client day, when I talk to my private clients, Carla will say, Tell me something really interesting about your conversations with the clients. I said, the good news is there wasn't anything. (laughs) Huh? I said, no, 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 no. They're on the track. They're on their track. They reported in. They're running down the track. I don't have anything new to tell you. And when I do have something new to tell her, 75% of the time it's going to be bad. It isn't going to be good. Oh, he's off the track. So today's call was just about dragging his ass back onto the track. It's not particularly interesting either. Don't sit around and dream up ideas. So not consider Buffett. They've had the same process for evaluating potential investments for 50 years. Now think about it. All that has changed in five decades their system for looking at the paperwork and deciding are we interested in this or are we not interested in this sj 50 years. They've been investing in the same five types of businesses for 40 years. They've used the same four deal structures for 40 years. They have the same business work days. There's three kinds of them that they define. I have five. I have five different kinds of days. They have three. They haven't changed by their account now, not mine, in 25 years. Well, do they ever make a, do they ever lose money? Oh yeah. Warren Buffett's first principle is don't lose money. Do they ever lose money? You bet your butt. And you know how? Anytime they deviate from that stuff. So Warren right now has got a Kraft Heinz problem. Put a ton of money in Heinz. Has a joint venture partner with a private equity fund. The private equity fund packed the board with their people and began to do what private equity does best, slash costs. Rebrand. This is what private equity does best. Warren's glued to the hip with these idiots, completely deviates from his four deal structures, and here's the result. There were warning signs that Buffett was going to regret this deal. Instead of buying Kraft Heinz outright or buying shares on the open market, he partnered with a private equity firm known for slashing costs rather than for the kind of long-term investment that Buffett loves. His type of hands-off ownership wouldn't be the case with the private equity fund in control. Sure enough, in less than a year... Heinz's CEO was replaced by someone from the private equity fund. They then tried to acquire Unilever for $143 billion as a hostile takeover, while Buffett has always been opposed to hostile takeovers. After this implosion, Buffett is likely to face questions about whether Berkshire should ever repeat this approach. I don't think there's going to be much of a question. In a rare admission by the investor with the Midas touch, Buffett has said he overpaid for his stake in Kraft Heinz and never should have done it with a partner. That misstep has left Buffett with one of the largest losses in its history, $4 billion so far. Principle number one, don't lose money. Guess who just lost a load of money? Why? Deviating from his principled systems. So if you want winner secrets, boy, here they are. Consistency. Consistency. If we're in a red tie, you outsell yourself on stage when you wear a blue tie you go throw out everything but red ties. Same thing with every else in your business. Constancy. That means you get up every day and you apply the principles, the strategies, the tactics, and the systems that work. Stick-to-itiveness and being very hard to dislodge from what works for you. Doesn't mean you don't listen. Doesn't mean you don't look. But Disney is using the same storytelling formula and template for almost every movie that Walt wrote by hand in a four-page document right after he did Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Here's how we tell a story. And if you had those four pages and you took the script from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and you took the script from Marvel's Black Panther and you sat at a table, you would see constancy, consistency, stuck to it. Third, Buffett, big on this. He would ask, is the business anti-fragile? How fragile is it? If you watch Shark Tank, you will see that Kevin O'Leary is the most adamant about this of all of them. Kevin will often say, there's no way you can protect that. Why would I give you a million dollars for 30% of the business, I could just take a million dollars and go hire somebody and create and knock off what you got. Well, that's a fragile business. A business based on one. One media, one distribution channel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is very fragile. Joan Rivers, who a friend of mine who made a literal fortune on QVC, said immediately after starting to do very well on QVC, because QVC restricts many of its on-air talent and vendors substantially, they can't even get to the customers. They can't even directly contact with the customers. She said she never really had a good night's sleep again and the more and the better she did on QVC the less she slept because she understood the whole thing was so fragile they could decide for any reason to snipper any day So Buffett talks about you'll hear him talk about having a moat around a business and how deep is the moat How wide is the moat? Does it have alligators in it? Is there something that makes the business anti-fragile? One of his quotes about this is, the three most important words in investing are margin of safety. This is important, by the way. Not upside, not yield. Margin of safety always building a 15,000 pounds tolerant bridge if you are going to drive 10,000 pound trucks across it. So if you're going to invest in your business tomorrow morning, what protects it? Can Facebook destroy it by changing algorithms? Deciding you can't use before pictures anymore because they make feel bad, people feel bad? They bounced an entire group of orthodontists the week before I came here. Threw them all off because their before pictures make people feel bad. You're only supposed to show happy pictures. That's not how you sell teeth straightening. You show people that no one would believe you could straighten the teeth with a suicidal look in their eyes. Then you show the happy person. So can they throw you off? Can they force you to do things that aren't effective? In any way, shape, or form, are you fragile? And then you got to think about how you fix it. Munger says, can competitors make the business products or services obsolete or copy or seem to copy the advantages while selling for less? If someone puts a store next to John's and certain customers can't see any difference between the two stores, then customers will buy from whichever have the cheapest prices. What is this business's protection against this? If you can't answer this, you are foolish to invest or continue to investing in your business. See, price protection and profit margin protection is critical. Margins vital. So Amazon doesn't destroy most businesses, by the way, any more than Walmart did a decade ago. They benefit from self-destruction. Some people just surrender. In the old days, all Walmart had to do was put a sign up, Walmart's coming to town, and 20% of the business is closed. They just surrendered before they even got there. Oh, we can't compete with Walmart. Same thing's happening with Amazon. No, no, no. Amazon's just stepping into what you let happen. You let yourself be fragile. You didn't have a profound reason for being. Best Buy's actually doing well. They came close to dying, and people finally got a grip on him, who said, very simply, we got to focus on what Amazon can't or won't do in this category. So we got to have smart people in the stores who will actually help people who don't know what the hell they're doing when they come in to buy this stuff and who will not be disrespectful to people who are 50 and above. And we got to go over and install it and teach people how to use it after we install it. See, Amazon can't do that. They can deliver that giant screen TV to me in a day, but now What? I got a giant box with a giant TV in it. I can't get the one I got now to work. I'm certainly not gonna get this one to work. So I'm gonna go to Best Buy, cause a guy'll come. I don't want the TV without the guy. So they have figured all this out at least for a while. At least for a while. That's what you gotta do. You've got to be able to support your prices, and you've got to be able to support your margins against price and margin destructive forces. Average copywriting job, I get six figures. In the time that I've been writing copy, we've gone from copywriters to online places you can go. You can bid the job out. And you can find a copywriter who lives in a cave in Afghanistan who will write the copy for you for 500 bucks. Hasn't affected me in the least. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care how many of those there are. It's irrelevant. I have a strategy to protect my fee and protect my margins do you? Because by the way, if you can be Amazon and there's any money in it, you will be. They're coming. Two years ago, I, I was dead wrong, by the way. I stood in a mastermind meeting and I said the people that, a group of people who have very little to worry about in this category are orthodontists who do Invisalign, invisible braces. Amazon. There's no way Amazon can, you can Amazon this business. Some skilled person has got to put them in a dental chair, tip their head back, do shit, right? I mean, and I was dead wrong. Smile Direct Club is be your own orthodontist at home. If you don't know, they actually ship you, Invisalign in a box, you go online, You watch a tutorial. If you need to, you take pictures of the kid's mouth with your phone. You install the shit. And it straightens the kid's teeth. Is it as good as, no. So will a really affluent parent do this? No. But middle income parents, yes. Good enough is good enough. And it's hurting that profession. Particularly those who didn't have a strategy in place to protect their fees and protect their margins. So anti-fragile is about this. We spare no expense on AV in my world. So it is all about Barriers to entry. Barriers to competing with you. So it can be in the products or services. If they are are, or are perceived as proprietary. So if that particular thing can only be gotten from you, you have the basis to protect price and profit if it is perceived that it can only be gotten from you, you have the basis to protect price and profit. So Advantage, for example, not very long ago, they were really the only significant sized, capable, hybrid publisher meaning the author pays to be published, but the overall ecosystem works like a real publisher. So there's PR, there's distribution, there's real editors, there's most pay to play publishers, you know, the editor is 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 their kid. And they don't care if anything's right. Type they just print the damn thing and ship it to you. Most real publishers force you to rewrite everything you do. So in between, but he was it. So he had this. Of course, he's going to be copied. The more successful they are, the more they're going to be copied. So this barrier was falling apart. What do you got to do? We got to do something. Or you will be in business with lower and lower prices Lower and lower margins until you can't be in business at all. Hence, Forbes books. Oh, now that's proprietary. Could only do it here. Can't do it anywhere else. So that's proprietary. Other systems have to be put in place that are proprietary. So that's one way you could be anti-fragile. Over here on the marketing side, you can have a great barrier, you can be anti-fragile, if you have a really great system for your advertising, marketing, and selling, that it is hard for anybody else to duplicate. Little tip, the more complicated it is, the better. If you have a really complicated system, You can bring your competitors into a room and teach it to them, and they won't do it. Mostly, they get up, go to the bathroom, don't come back, one after the other. Before you're done, you're in the room by yourself. Pretty much people won't copy anything that has more than three steps in it. That's pretty much it. But if it's got 30, if it's a big diagram with arrows going this way and that way, They're out. They're just out. So that's a hint. The more complicated, the better. Last, down here, you can have some barrier and you can have some anti-fragility based on your control of the customer. That's why the QVC thing is so fragile. Because you go on there and you sell $100 million worth of stuff in a year, but you have no control of the customer. Well, the temptation to get your money to, if you're QVC, is enormous. The more money there is, the more the temptation. Gee, if we could just eliminate her, we could keep another $25 million. That's a lot of dough. Right? So control of the customer is absolutely vital when you can build it into a business. One way or another, you want barriers. And remember, the worst number in business is one. The mistake happens in all kinds of different ways and it is so tempting. One superstar salesperson. Well, we're going to add some more later when we get bigger. No, 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 no. You're going to be a hostage before you know it. You got to at least cut the country in two and have two of them. The better you cut it up in four and have four of them. Or one only does inbound, another one does outbound. Somehow, but you can't have one one source of your leads. People have such short memories; they don't understand. Media gets taken away all the time, often abruptly. I had a client. We we did one million broadcast faxes on average into every market. And then he woke up and he couldn't. It changed the entire economics of the business. Do not call. One-third of the mortgage industry was gone in 30 days. Because they were dependent on that one thing. Anywhere you see one in your business, you've got problems. By the way, that includes you. That may not be fixable other than with systems, in which case you better have a lot of insurance to at least protect everybody else who depends on you. Because So we have a sign in the barn, and it is true. They all go lame. Every racehorse goes lame. Very few make it to retirement age productively. Some go lame and come back, but some don't. Same thing is true of everything in business people, media, place, process, it all goes lame. It is a question of when. Not if there used to be, for professional speakers, this whole mid-range of business. So most associations, their national convention, they might have one celebrity speaker. They would have some free speakers that came internally from their world. But there were a lot of mid-range slots Three grand, five grand, $7,500 fees, a leadership person, a sales training person. They pretty much could work um, 100 times a year in those slots. The business changed almost overnight. Almost overnight. All the money went to five celebrities. The mid-range thing just went away. Some of these people have corporate jobs. Some of these people are Uber drivers. But a lot of them are, are not speakers. So one is a truly intolerable number. Here's the last one. And of course, the more successful they become, the more they ask this question. Buffett and Munger are looking for synergy. If we buy this business, do we already own something else that we can create synergistic opportunity with? If we don't own it, do we have a really good contact where there would be synergistic opportunity with it? And is there an organized circle of cooperation around the business. Very few businesses today can afford independent customer acquisition and create any serious growth. The costs of customer acquisition have to somehow be shared front or back with a circle of cooperators. So when you see any kind of business being driven by direct response, like my pillow, if you see my pillows, they cannot afford that ad campaign to sell the pillows. They're probably going negative on everyone they sell. If not, they're very close. You see them scrambling now for the second product and the third product so that they can better monetize the customer. But there's also a circle of cooperators who are sharing the cost of the customer acquisition. For example, renting the list in the list rental marketplace. There are joint venture partners, et cetera, et cetera. So they would look for this synergy. Munger says, it is believed by most business school graduates, none of whom should ever be listened to, and by most consultants, that a corporation can easily improve its outcomes by purchasing or starting unrelated or tenuously related businesses. According to this widely shared view, if only the obvious steps had been taken, if only the right mission statement and culture adopted, if only the right people put in place, if only the capital was available, then each railroad, instead of remaining bound and changed by new forms of competition and obsolete and hostile union rules and laws, would have become another federal express. Our experience makes us far less optimistic about growth through acquisitions added to a core business. We think undue optimism grows by the winners. The successes that draw too much attention, far too little attention is given to the terrible effects on shareholders or other owners from the many more disastrous examples of corporate acquisitions. We see the successes, we ignore the failures. If a business is expanding, not just growing, by buying or building, there should be compelling synergistic reasons to build or buy that, not just as a way to be bigger. So a lot of people grow or expand their business, and if you ask them why, it's to get bigger. That is not a good enough reason to add by building it or buying it. You want synergy. You want a lot of two-way arrows in your diagram. If you go look at Disney's original theory of business diagram, which you can find online, so you can Google Disney theory of business, you can find it. It's almost all two-way arrows and loops this is synergistic with this, this is synergistic with this, this feeds this, but this feeds this. If you see my info business diagram on which I built my career, it looks like that. I modeled that. So just getting bigger alone is not a good enough reason. So if you want to bottom line from all this, Buffett and Munger are very, very big on Reasons. Do you have a good enough reason for what you're buying, building, or doing? And there's a lot of bad reasons that govern business. Because I want to. Because I inherited it. Because I've been doing it now for 20 years. I don't know how to do anything else. Because I want to be bigger. There's all sorts of bad reasons. You've got to challenge yourself to have really, really really good reasons for everything you do, and your money will be in proportion to that. Hey, had a great time with you guys. Thank you all for being here. You've been listening to one of our gold members-only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a Diamond member and get access to the Diamond members-only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.